Lee Sessinger. All right, now it's time for our first panel discussion. I'm going to ask that all questions be held until after both speakers have their presentations. Um, I'm going to introduce the moderator. The moderator for the, the Marine panel is Dr. Rafe Sagrin. He's the Associate Director for Ocean and Coastal Policy at the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions. Uh, he is currently leading the Nicholas Institute's efforts to improve pathways towards ecosystem-based management of ocean and coastal resources. He's a marine ecologist by training who has studied responses from marine communities and wetlands to climate change, illegal fishing, pollution, and other human impacts. Um, now, Rafe, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Um, I, I also want to express my thanks to the student organizers who put this together. I've been really impressed since I, uh, since I got here uh, in September how much student activity there is at this school around environmental issues. And uh, uh, it's just great to see that. And uh, I also want to thank the dean. Uh, without his efforts to create the Nicholas Institute, I wouldn't be here and finally have found a home where a marine biologist who's also really interested in policy um, and uh, can work with some of the best uh, environmental scientists and some of the best students in the, in the world. So, uh, it's just great to be here. Um, I guess I'm still sort of in the, the honeymoon period of being <laughs> I really like it so far. Um, I'm happy to be able to bring uh, Dr. Chris Wilcox and Josh Donlin here. And whenever there's a marine panel, you can be sure that the dress code will not be in suits and ties. So <laughs> feel bad. <laughs> great biologist backing you up. But um, it, it's uh, a great couple of people. Uh, uh, I have here to bring some different perspective, um, not just the marine perspective, but a different perspective on marine protected areas. Um, uh, Josh, for example, is, uh, I wouldn't know how to describe you, Josh, but you just do ecology and environmental science wherever it's needed. Um, you may have seen him in the popular press recently over the rewilding project, which got a lot of attention, um, and Josh led up that idea of, you know, what would happen if we had gigantic big mammals roaming North America again? It's just a, you know, one example of the way that Josh thinks across boundaries in terms of um, his approach to environmental science. Um, and uh, Chris Wilcox came up here all the way from Tasmania, not Tanzania, some of you might have been led to believe, but he came from Tasmania where uh, he's a senior research scientist at CSIRO. Um, and he works on um, uh, marine affairs and um, really the interaction of humans and fisheries and other ways that we interact with the marine environment. Um, I am going to provide I can get the I have a few um, slides here, and then we'll bring uh, and then we'll bring Josh up, uh, and then Chris, and then we'll have a discussion. Um, as I mentioned, the idea of perspective I think is really important when talking about protected areas and thinking about marine protected areas in particular. Uh, we have a long history thinking about terrestrial protected areas, uh, but. Marine protected areas, although there are some very old marine protected areas, 
there has just been an intense, intense amount of interest in marine protected areas in the last 10 or 15 years. So um, in general, it's a young discussion and it's a, it's a new discussion. Um, and a lot of the things, as I'll try to show in the short talk, that we know from terrestrial conservation play out differently in the marine world. Um, we have some old uh, marine protected areas. This is Hopkins Marine Station. Uh, if you've been to Monterey, the Monterey Bay Aquarium is down here at the Hopkins Marine Station. Um, and the area in front of the marine station has been protected since uh, about 1930 as a fully protected marine reserve um, where take isn't allowed except by scientific permit and, and fishing isn't allowed. Um, and that was really important to me as my graduate work was uh, looking historically at ecological field studies that have been done here in the 1930s. So I had some assurance um, that this area was not uh, that disturbed and that the changes I was seeing were due to other factors, in this case, climate change. Um, so there is a, a, also an importance of protected areas in the marine environment uh, just for doing scientific work. Um, but you'll note that that Marine protected area is a tiny speck that PowerPoint wouldn't even let me put a red dot. It's so small on this map. Um, and, you know, that was one of the very few marine protected areas along the whole Pacific coast. I circled the Channel Islands um, down in Southern California there because there has been a process um, that's recently run its course in terms of protecting areas at uh, the Channel Islands. But again, perspective, if you compare all these green and purple and yellow areas are wilderness areas of some stripe uh, in the western United States. Terrestrially, there's much more area and a, a much longer history uh, there of protecting areas. With a group called Marine, which is the uh, multi-agency Rocky Intertidal Network, it's a monitoring group uh, made up of several universities and agencies and private foundations in Southern California We monitor Rocky Intertidal sites. We categorize sites along the Southern California coast based on how open they actually are um, to access and exploitation of marine resources by humans. Um, and the sites out on the islands are fairly well protected. Um, and then there are both protected and fairly open access sites um, along the mainland. But an important point here is that many of what we've classified from our observations as open access sites have some designation in the law books as a marine reserve or a marine park or a biodiversity protection site. Uh, none of that, even here in, in the United States where uh, you know, we talk about having resources and having law enforcement and stuff, none of those designations matter because there's essentially no enforcement. Um, and that's really clear when you look at an indicator like uh, owl limpets, which is a large snail, large gastropod uh, that uh, people take for food. It's, it's almost like an abalone um, when they get large. And you can look at their size structures and just look at the well-protected sites versus the not very well-protected sites, the open access sites, and you lose all of the large reproductive female abalone uh, for the most part out of those unprotected sites. And the only thing keeping those populations in the unprotected sites is that nearby you have these reserve sites um, and because these many marine invertebrates like uh, this limpet have a pelagic larval phase, they can essentially rescue uh, those sites that are being, being depleted in the, with the larger ones taken out. Um, I'm gonna, well, the only thing I want to point out here is that um, 
protected sites have a value, um, especially in terms of um, uh, bringing in people for education. And what we did here uh, on the left panel is we compared a highly protected site, Cabrillo National Monument, which is one of these sites where there actually is enforcement. And they have two sites within that. One where they let all the school kids, it's the most visited site in California, uh, and therefore probably one of the most visited intertidal sites in the United States. Um, one of their sites, they let kids run all over the place, and another site, they actually keep people out to see what the impacts are. And at least at a species like this, that's primarily taken for food, not for souvenirs or that kind of thing, what these size structures shows that there's virtually no difference. So um, I think it's really important, in fact, to use these marine protected areas as, a, as an educational source and, and, as I mentioned, as a scientific source. And, I, I found surprisingly little data, in fact, um, showing that these kind of activities, these educational activities, have a huge impact on the intertidal where we are, which, which surprised me, in fact. Um, another perspective question is the conversion of private holdings to public property. Um, this is a big issue, and this is where perspective plays a, uh, an important role. This is stuff that Peter Monday and people from UC Santa Cruz are looking at. Uh, there's a lot of properties in uh, California, for example, that are essentially private properties, or for example, Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, that, that are de facto reserves, where people, for the marine environment, people can't really get to them easily. A number of these properties, um, for example, Stornetta Ranch, which has been essentially private property since before California was a state, um, are now being converted through activities of, say, the Nature Conservancy, buying up land and putting it into the public trust, sometimes of state partnerships and that kind of thing. And there are unintended consequences in the marine environment. On the terrestrial land, people may be thinking positives about getting cattle grazing off of these coastal properties, replanting native plants, that kind of thing. But what also happens is that you open up roads out to the coast that were never there, um, and all of a sudden you've got an abalone population, um, one of the last big, big abalone populations in terms of having really large reproductive abalone um, getting hit down really quickly. So what Pete did is they, they didn't have time after this area had opened to uh, petition fishing game where they got rejected in their petition to keep this area as a protected reserve for abalone. So a, a legal take of abalone was allowed. And what you see is the sites closest to where this road is, that's the dark tree line there at the top, uh, got really hit down, right down to, and I would argue, below the legal size. Fish and game might look at that size structure and say, oh, they're just fishing out of the legal size. But if you look at what likely the original population was, you see a lot of the animals just smaller than the legal size are getting hit too. And Pete's estimated that that's going to lead to a two-fold loss in abalone abundance, but a tenfold loss in fecundity and reproductive output because you're taking these large, large ones that are much more reproductive with a 20-year expected recovery time. This happened in a weekend, the first weekend this, this branch was open. Um, just a couple notes in the marine environment. Um, technology allows us to um, do a number of things uh, in the planning process and uh, the process of managing marine protected areas. Um, so, for example, technology, the, the ability to do 
some pretty heavy statistics now and look at populations allows us to do a lot of planning. There's a lot of this that went into, this. these are the channel islands at the top in terms of thinking about which areas would be the optimal areas to protect. Um, that allows scientists to go into a discussion about marine protected areas with one perspective, that is, what is the, the best biological outcome. Um, other kinds of technologies, like the things that Barbara Block has been employing, these are, these are uh, satellite tags for tuna, uh, allow you to think about marine protected areas, even for highly migratory species, which is always a concern in the marine environment. How can a marine protected area help a species like a tuna that cruises across the entire Atlantic? But you can also see from these satellite tracks that there are places where tuna aggregate and spend a lot of time, which are um, often breeding and spawning grounds, so um, that you can think about time and spatial closures that might not be permanent marine protected areas, um, but things that target a certain life stage. Um, and then there are things uh, like VMS, vessel monitoring systems. This gets into the enforcement end of the MPA, where you can track where a fishing boat has been and therefore monitor if uh, people are fishing illegally in essentially a, a space on the map. Um, and that, of course, carries its own uh, discussions about uh, civil liberties and that kind of thing. And all these discussions do come up when we talk about marine protected areas. Um, so, uh, you know, again, invoking Mike Orbach, um, he always reminds us that, you know, managing ecosystems is really about managing people. Uh, so you could say MPAs are, are managing people areas. Um, the interesting thing is um, that um, this doesn't always have to be some kind of top-down process um, that comes from on high and say, you must protect your areas. Um, I got to know some of these guys doing intertidal research on the Pacific coast of Baja, California. Um, but uh, these fishers on that coast are organized into co-ops um, and, and organizations of co-ops like FedEx Co-op uh, that are fishing organizations uh, that co-manage an area in front of their fishing village with the government. And they develop all sorts of management practices, including uh, no-take marine reserves and other kinds of spatial closures uh, and time closures in their areas. So uh, I think the important thing that I think Josh and Chris will really touch on is how much um, the human interaction plays into this. And you can have the great biological maps like I showed for the Channel Islands, but that all needs to get processed through uh, the whole human component, the social component, and everything. And I'm sure we'll hear that theme uh, again and again today. But I'm going to let these guys take it away because they really have some neat examples from all over the world um, showing how this actually plays out. So, Josh, you want to come up and then we'll, after we talk, we'll get up.